All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck sticks? What the fucksters? What the fuckadelics? What the fuck minister fullers? Yeah, thank you for that. Whoever sent me that. I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Patterson Hood from the Drive-By Truckers is on today's show, and it's sort of a companion piece, if not a continuation of Wednesday's show with Jason Isbell. I appreciate all the uh, positive feedback, and I'm glad you people were moved as much as I was by that conversation uh, and that rendition of his song, Elephant. Today is Patterson, who was the, I, I don't like to say leader, but he is the, the leader of the drive-by truckers, and uh, he is the son of David Hood, the, uh, the seminal bass player for the Muscle Shoals studio, uh, who played on some of the most amazing hits and songs of, 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 of your life, or perhaps songs that you know. I, I'm just blown away recently by, you know, my, my recent foray into, uh, into these documentaries, uh, De- you know, Denny Tedesco's unfinished documentary, which will be done soon, The Wrecking Crew, about that crew of 20 to 30 musicians in the Los Angeles area through from the late 50s through the 60s, and also the Muscle Shoals video about that crew down there and their place in the history of music, and and uh, uh, Patterson's father was part of that. And I watched that actually right before, uh, the night before I talked to Patterson, and and also a couple of weeks before I, I just filled my life and my mind with drive-by truckers music, and um, and I was excited to talk to Patterson. He was excited to be on, so, so that's going to happen in a few minutes. Oh, my God. Uh, the struggle with Time Warner is ongoing. Um it's fascinating to me that uh, just last night, uh, probably into the 20 or 25th call I've made to them about the dropping out of my internet in the evening, and now the you know I've had three technicians over. I've got a new modem, and uh, they've done some new wiring outside, and they insist that they insist that everything's fine, yet the problem persists. And finally, this is two weeks into it or more. I put in one call the other night and I get put on hold to talk to a supervisor, which doesn't happen for 15 minutes. And I decide I've got other things to do other than just seethe to bad music. And I call back and then uh, I tell them the problem. They're like, well, you see, I see her on your file. You're waiting for a supervisor. I'm like, yeah, well, that guy I don't think even exists. Whoever the supervisor was, I, I think perhaps that the customer service representative got aggravated with my tone and decided to punish me by hanging me in shitty music limbo with the occasional advertisement for your bad company. And I actually said that. I, that I got into that tone. It's like, I don't know how you guys can you know, be such a bad company. Then I call a third time. And again, same tone. There's nothing you can do. You, you, you do nothing. Is there somebody somewhere that can do something? And then this guy goes, well, let me connect you to tier two. I'm like, tier two? What's tier two? Tier two customer service. Huh. So then I hear a phone ringing. I'm being connected to tier two. And then it rings three times and then the call drops. So now I get back on the phone and I'm like, I was on hold being connected to tier two, whatever that is. What's your name and your phone number? Just connect me to tier two. I want to be part of that. I need to connect and talk to tier two. They're like, okay. I give them the information. So then bad music, then phone ringing. And then a woman with an unidentifiable accent says, can I help you? And there's part of me that thinks like, 
tier two is on another planet. That's why this has become so difficult is that another planet is managing our internet connections and they haven't quite figured out our ways or the right way to do it given the gravitational force of our planet and the electrical fields that exist. I'm speaking to an alien. That's how it made me feel better. And this alien, this person from another planet did something that has not happened in the two weeks that I've been going through this. And that is, she said, I'm running diagnostics on your line. Not just when I'm checking the connection. There is something else that happens on tier two. Tier two is its own universe, its own planet. They're doing some special tier two shit to my line. And she goes, yeah, there's some, there's some red, uh, there's a problem with the connection between the server and your modem. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you, lady from another planet. Thank you. What happens now? Because I feel like I'm close to getting a solution and perhaps some help. She says, well, I'm going to put it on a 72-hour watch to see if it keeps happening. I'm like, yes, that sounds proactive and great. It sounds like your planet has good conflict resolution uh, solutions, and, and I enjoy doing business with, with you and your planet. I don't know why you've chosen the front company or the facade of Time Warner you know, to, because they clearly don't know what's going on. Why can't you just be the person in charge who does hands-on diagnostic tests and makes me feel looked after for 72 hours to see if the problem that I've been saying is real for two weeks is actually real. So I communicated with Alien Lifeform in the, uh, in the customer service area, and I'm looking forward to what that 72-hour watch on my line for problems yields. Yeah, that's where I'm at. That's where I'm at. There's been contact. Now we're going to talk to Patterson Hood, who is a lovely man, and, and I enjoyed talking to him. We, we got a lot. We, we covered a lot. We covered some of the stuff I talked about with Jason Isbell. We covered dads. We covered uh, rock and roll. We covered the South. We covered uh, the politics of the South. We covered man. We covered you know his sort of growth uh, as an artist and just a great guy. And I like talking to guys from the South. And I think this man, not unlike Jason Isbell, is a very earnest and very um, honest songwriter. And a guy with a vision and, and, a, and a commitment to that vision. I don't know what more you can ask for, you know, from, from, uh, from an artist. And he plays a song at the end that's, that was uh, important to him. And I, and I think you'll enjoy that. Uh, but what a great guy and what a great talk. So let's talk now to Patterson Hood from the Drive-By Truckers. You know, I talked to uh, Jason. Right. You guys all right? Yeah, 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 okay, yeah, good. yeah. We're real good. <laughs> good. Yeah. But uh, we haven't always been, but we're 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 good now. I'm real proud of real proud of Jason. You weren't always uh, good with Jason Isbell, like during the time you were in Drive By Truckers. Oh yeah, you know it didn't. I mean, the last couple years were hell. But, yeah. Uh, but and I and I'm sure he it, I'm sure he would be the first to say that too. But but, but I think what's interesting to me about his story is that you know his relationship with your father. Is is a little bizarre to in in the fact that Jason Isbell had a, a relationship with your father when he was a young man, and you were out of town, and right. it was coincidental, yeah, and that you guys didn't even know each other. That's really yeah. until later. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure Dad met Jason before I did, and I know Dad knew Shauna before I knew her. I'm, yeah. Oh, it's then why? Yeah, who was in the band? Your but, band. Uh, 
Right. It's a complicated little business. Oh, man. You Southern guys. <laughs> I know. <laughs> everybody kind of knows the other person. So you did you uh, you were did you grow up in Muscle Shoals or around there? In around there, yeah. What town? In Florence. So like five minutes away, right across the river. You know, given that your dad was you know part of uh, what the Fame Studio and then the, and then his own studio, which was what the Muscle Shoals Muscle Shoals Sound, yeah, the Muscle Shoals Sound. That you, what are your first recollections of of that? I mean, I always kind of knew about it. You know, I remember hearing about when the Stones came to town. Dad got us out of town. He he sent Mom and I to visit our grand my grandparents in, like, in Aruba. Yeah, he got us out of the country. He didn't want us anywhere close by when the Stones came. But, the first uh, time when they went down there, they were to record Sticky Fingers, pieces of Sticky right, Fingers. They did Brown Sugar and Wild Horses. And, at your dad's place or at Dad's place? Nick, what was the other guy's fame. name? It was at Dad's place at Muscle Shoals Sound. And what was the other guy's name? Fame Nick? Rick Hall. Rick Hall. Yeah. So it was at your dad's place right and he was a partner in that he was a partner that's fascinating so he's like you know i don't know what they're gonna get me up to <laughs> i can only imagine <laughs> i mean i was five you know so i was i was just thrilled to go see my grandmother but uh but it, it uh in retrospect it was years later when i kind of did the math like oh okay that's why they sent us to see my grandmother right right before christmas and that year but so uh they you know i mean that's an amazing story i mean there were a bunch of just you know local guys they weren't you know they weren't they were as far from rock stars as you could as you could possibly be your dad that they were and, musicians. and guys yeah and all of a sudden they're hosting the rolling stones you know and the whole story is pretty fascinating because like in the documentary you know they were able to sort of bring in you know just like to that studio to to uh to uh uh recall right initially and then your your dad's place we're, we're able to sort of make this case that they redefined American music entirely. Absolutely. Like, you know, that the, the bit about, you know, Dwayne Allman trying to, you know, trying to, you know, talking Wilson Pickett into covering <laughs> Hey Jude. And because of the chorus at the end, you know, that's where Southern rock was invented. I mean, it's it, truly, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, it, it's, it's an amazing story. That's one of my favorite tracks of all time. I, I've, uh, I just got asked for some piece I did at, at uh serious last week uh, about they were as a little sidebar thing about the almond brothers they want to know you know what my favorite almond brothers track and it's like actually my favorite is pre almond brothers is the wilson pickett hey jude track i gotta just, listen to that again because i think i got it on vinyl in there it's so smoking that's that's not my dad on bass on that song that's a, a bass player named jerry jamat who um uh, was a, I think he was a Memphis guy, but he did a lot of sessions in Muscle Shoals at that era. But and at that time, you know, in that studio, and you know, I'm not going to get too hung up on. It, I'm just trying to get a sense of, you you know, what your belief is about the region, because you know, in that, you know, coming, you come from a, a pedigree of something that uh, that was a pretty amazing thing and a very singular thing. You know, your father, right. you know, has obviously a specific bass sound. And it's on some of the the most the, the biggest R and B you know tunes in the, ever. Right. Like uh, on the Aretha Franklin numbers and stuff like that, right? Oh yeah, you know the the when I became really aware of it all was I was about seven, and when I'll Take You There became a hit, and you know that song is, I mean it's built around Dad's bass part, right? And uh, and during the breakdown part, which is 
kind of awesome in its own right. Mavis starts, you know, vamping David, little yeah. David. And I was, I would hear it on the radio and I was aware that that was my dad. She was talking about, she was saying my dad's name on a record <laughs> on a, on at that time, the number one record in the nation. And, yeah. Yeah. And I thought that was really, really cool. It, it's amazing. But, uh, and it's an amazing song. It, it is an amazing, I mean, it's still one of my very all time favorites. And, uh, but I also learned really quickly not to talk about it at school because uh-huh. it, it was it was not amazing to my classmates. You know, it, it, for what, it was for the race reason. Well, all of it. I yeah. mean, I mean, I was I was a really an oddball, weird kid as far as from the perspective of the other kids in my, you know, North Alabama public schools, early 1970s. Just and by virtue of having a musician as a father. My dad or? was a musician. My parents were, you know, about 10 years younger than most of the kids' parents. We didn't go to church. Yeah. That was a big deal. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, I grew up in a place where one of the first questions when you meet someone is, you know, and what church do you go to? Yeah. You know, and, and it's like, oh, I don't, you know, I, you know, I went once to Presbyterian. <laughs> church you know and what you know but uh so uh my dad's partner uh, the drummer roger uh, his son was in my same classroom with me in second grade and uh i can remember him at like show and tell standing up there saying you know and my dad's the world's greatest drummer you know and yeah. talking about it and then i'd see him on the playground getting the shit beat out of him you know really? a few minutes later it's like note to self we don't talk about what dad does you know and uh, I, so i didn't i didn't talk about it until i moved to athens in my 30s and uh and uh it was just you know people who knew me well knew about it and or people who were into that knew about it but i never talked about it was there a sense then uh, other than you know getting your ass kicked i mean what was the the primary line of work in those parts i mean it has it was very blue collar it was uh uh you know the tva was based there or or was had a lot of operations there and reynolds metals they made uh, aluminum foil and stuff like that there and uh um, there was a timber um, too, right? A little bit, and the other big industry, a lot of T-shirts and stuff like that were made. I guess that was more in the '80s, but uh, right. And uh, what was the, oh, in the Ford? Ford built transmissions there, and uh, they closed the Ford plant in '82. The year I graduated from high school, and that started a domino effect. So it became kind of almost like a not a, quite not as bad as Flint, Michigan, but I mean it it a lot of parallels. When I saw Roger and me years later for the first time, I. I couldn't get over all the parallels that I saw that had happened because when Ford closed, then all these other businesses that, you know, made their money from Ford or Ford, Ford employees closed. Right. And just the domino effect. Right, yeah. yeah. And so we had we had double digit unemployment all through even all through the nineties. I mean wow. it took it the town has really just rebounded in the last in the last decade it started rebounding because they it occurred to him to kind of turn it into a a tourist to to go after tourism and also retirement communities. Oh, a really? lot of people retire. It's not a bad place to retire. It's pretty and it's very pretty. And uh, so that so it's kind of rebounded. And then you know a few other things have happened. Billy Reed, the clothes designer, is based there and has been really successful. And uh, and he's reinvested a lot into the town and done some really great stuff. And you live but, down there still or no? No, I've been in Athens, Georgia for 20 years next month. Oh, so that's where you stayed. Yeah. Yeah. You'd be, now, well, let's go back to where, you know, where, where'd you get the bug to play? I mean, you know, I know, did you spend any time in that studio, either one of them, either Rick's or your dad? Very little. I wasn't really allowed to go much because I was a kid. And, and, and also that would mean mom would be there. And mom and dad, you know, they should never have, 
they were two people that shouldn't have ever been married in the first place. Are they married now? No, no. And uh, <laughs> and and I mean, they've only started. They've been divorced twenty six, twenty seven years. So and they've only started wife. speaking recently. So you half know? your life they've been divorced. Yeah, but yeah. it happened later. In your it life. happened later. Should have happened sooner. Yeah, and, uh, a lot of fighting. Uh, yeah, it wasn't you know, or, and a lot of just dad just not just not coming home because it just was better if he just worked all the time because and, he like you know in the documentary it's like i feel like i got to know him a little bit whatever yeah. he seems like a pretty he seems like a bass player he's, he's a really <laughs> laid back sweet, low-key guy <laughs> yeah. personality wise his um his personality in that band in the rhythm section is very comparable to uh what brad our drummer brings to the table in our band he's the he's the guy who's kind of level-headed and easygoing uh-huh. that all the different <clears throat> factions can get along with and so everybody uh you know we call brad easy b and uh and uh, dad was that guy in that band because the others were all total hotheads jimmy and barry and roger the drummer too uh, a little bit a oh little yeah bit. and uh not as much as as jimmy and barry but uh-huh. but yeah i think they all could get a little hot you know and and dad it's very mellow very you know and, and um very likable he's a sweet guy and and <clears throat> when did you i mean if there was this distance between you and, and whatever was going on there in the studio which is understandable because he didn't want your mom around he ne- didn't necessarily want you around <laughs> no. you know during a wilson pickett session or no, or, no, uh, or a throwing not. stone session because at that time it was just fucking nuts oh yeah i mean i didn't understand at the time i was mad about it i was you know i, I was like you know he's getting to do this cool thing and yeah. I'm not allowed to even, you know, walk in the door or whatever. But I mean, I totally, and, and to make it worse, one of dad's partners was kind of the guy who brought his son around a lot. Oh, right. And so, so, and I, and I grew up, you know, a year older than Jay and, and Jay Johnson was always at the studio. And so I would hear from him, you know, and like, Oh man, I just, you know, just met Mark Knopfler. It was great. And blah, blah, blah. And, you know, Dylan was, and it's like, what, you know, when you were old enough to know, yeah, because I'm, you and I are about the same age. So by the time Dylan was recording there, Knopfler, I mean, they were, you know, that was what we were in high school. Yeah. Like I remember when those records came out. So it was like, Oh this, yeah. It was like I don't probably wasn't even a Dire Straits album, was it? It was probably they for, did uh, Communique and Slow Train Coming at about the same time, and uh, so uh, I think I think Communique was actually co-produced by my dad's partner Barry by Barry Beckett with uh-huh. Jerry Wexler, and uh, and uh, then uh, right at that same time, Dylan hired Knopfler to play guitar on Slow Train Coming, so. Uh, they mixed Communique at Muscle Shell Sound and then recorded Slow Train Coming. And you couldn't there. go? No, I, I did I did meet Dylan when I was a kid, but uh, but that was just kind of a fluke. It was uh, one of those rare rare times I did make it over there. I, I, um, when Bob Dylan came to town, the yeah. very first time was to play on a record by Donnie Fritz, who's yeah. an artist from there. And um, Dylan was just playing. Yeah, he came to play on that record, and yeah. he brought his wife and oldest son. Uh, they drove from California to uh, Muscle Shoals in the dead of summer in like a station wagon. Not Jacob, and uh, it was the older a, it was brother. a Jesse. Yeah, and uh, so I ended up, you know, Jesse was stuck in Florence with nothing to do, and he was close to my age, so they kind of arranged like a what they nowadays call a play date, I yeah, guess. You yeah. know, so he and I played together one day, and I and so I met his dad for a moment then although i don't how old were you i don't know if he said anything but uh i was maybe 11 probably 11 i was old enough to know he was i mean i was i already had a couple of dylan records but you know i didn't uh uh you know i I knew not to gawk 
<laughs> but yeah, so what so what informed, you know, what became your interest in in playing and, and in listening? I mean, if your dad was sort of icing you and you were kind of getting mad about that, I mean, what was around the house? I mean, what was the, the music that was... Well, he had thousands of records. And oh, really? So, so he, and he was gone. Yeah. So I would pilfer, and I wasn't allowed to play with them but i did i yeah. taught myself early that if i put everything back exactly perfect so i got really good at taking care of records at a young age uh-huh. so i'd come home from school and put the headsets on i'd be supposedly you know in quotes doing homework right and uh and uh you know mom would be upstairs watching tv not paying any attention so i'd be down there rummaging through the record collection and anything that had a cool cover that's what i'd play and that's why that's where i got my to this day kind of obsession about the artwork on our records and stuff yeah they're great it's like you use the same guy right a lot wes yeah Yeah. they're 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 great and that and thank you for all that vinyl because you know i had i think i had three or four of your records you know i I had decoration day the dirty south and and one other one and then like you know it's one of those things where i interview a musician like i like a band right but you know when you when you when you have to talk to a guy you're like, well, I, I guess I better make sure I'm, I'm caught up. And then you're like, holy fuck. Yeah. There's 900 records here. Yeah. I, I was listening to your solo record last night from 2012. You know, that was, uh, seemed to, it, I, I liked how you get involved and in, in invest yourself emotionally in, in the stories of, of either fictional characters or, or, you know, in that case, uh, I guess your grandfather, right? Right. My great uncle. Yeah. Your great uncle. And, and that, you know, to, to sort of work from that memory and, and process the darkness, you know, through, you, you know, the type of music that resonates with you and the type of music you, you put out is, is very moving. And where, where did, where did you first start to, to realize that there were stories to tell? What, what, what made you do that? I always loved stories, you know, and I think probably from my mom's side of the family, I think, I think there's a lot of like probably could have been great writers in my mom's side of the family. My uh-huh. my grandmother was a really good writer. She she even got published a few times, just you know, like magazine things. She'd submit a magazine thing like article back in the fifties and I think the three things she submitted all got published. Uh-huh. And uh, uh her her brother, one of my other great uncles, was uh he was kinda like the family historian and he there's like hundreds and hundreds of pages of things he's written that you know my cousins in the process of trying to kind of type up and preserve and everything and it's i mean it's it reads like literature it's beautiful it seems to be sort of a southern thing yeah uh just sort of like the idea because it, 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 all those communities were, were were so kind of tiny right and and you know everybody was sort of involved right and you there know. was a lot of oral history involved you yeah. know it was it was uh you know, that region of the country was one of the last places in the United States to get power. And so there was a lot of storytelling because there wasn't TV. Walking and, down the street and sitting down and talking. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I was I was raised mostly by my grandmother and, and Why her is brother. Because my, my parents were teenagers when they got married and they weren't happy. And dad was a musician and he was gone a lot. My mom's had a, a life of a lot of health issues and stuff. And uh, so we, uh, you know, we spent. I spent most of my childhood with my grandmother, and then every weekend I'd go out to the family farm that was that side of the family's like homestead land. Uh-huh. And my great uncle, who's a truck driver, uh, he would time his trips where he'd be home every weekend and he'd take care of me. Uh-huh. And so I spent every weekend from the time I was like a baby, I mean, in diapers, all the way until I was a teenager and you know, too busy drinking and chasing girls to go out there on weekends. But I spent every weekend out there. And what'd you do? Like, what was the scene out there? 
Um, it's beautiful, beautiful farm, about eight miles out of town. And uh, what are we talking like? You know, ten like, acres, like 150 to about two hundred acres. Wow, that's and huge. gorgeous, and and bit and like rolling hills uh-huh. and fields. And I had a go kart out there, and and my great uncle who was like, you know, he didn't have, he never married, he never had children of his own. So I was like his, the closest he ever had to a son, uh-huh. and uh, and he was the greatest dad imaginable, and he would. Uh, you know, uh, he would take the bush hog and cut out uh, like trails and stuff in the fields. Let, he'd let the grass grow high, then cut all these trails for the go-karts. And I had a cousin that kept his out there and we would ride go-karts all weekend. And I kept my stereo out there. My records were out there. He'd take me to the movies because he loved movies too. And I've always been a movie fanatic. Yeah. So, so, and he would take me to, you know, I got, I got taken to movies as a kid that kids weren't really supposed to see. Like I saw Chinatown when I was, nine or ten. Oh and, yeah you know i saw some great movies at a young age uh-huh. and, and always was kind of obsessed that's my other obsession so uh but that's interesting because like you know to see that stuff because i saw some stuff when i was too young to see it but you know it forces your brain to reckon with shit yeah that's not ready to reckon with and then you never fucking forget it yeah right. it's just sort of stuck there and then one day you're like oh you yeah know, there you go but it's already kind of carved this pathway in your brain to the dark place and and you know and then you have to sort of fill it in later. I think it I think it was a positive thing in my I mean and looking yeah, back yeah, on yeah, it yeah. like my 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 wife just gets horrified at some of the stories I tell her about things like that. You know, movies I saw as a kid that you know I saw Midnight Cowboy when I was six. You know, she's like, I can't believe your parents took it. You know, but. Well, you know, you to know, be honest but, with you about that movie, I didn't know that that was about a gay relationship till I was in my twenties. Right, right. I could, it, it, I most of that stuff just went over my head, and and uh, and and the parts that didn't, you know, probably helped me deal with my own dark shit yeah. at some later point. Well, it sounds like your 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 great uncle. I mean, you know, going out onto a farm on the weekend, riding go karts, playing records, and going to movies—that's fucking great. It must have been like the root. Oh, the, it was idyllic. You yeah. know, my my my. My childhood is kind of split between the idyllic weekends and the hellish weeks because I was, I mean, school sucked for me. I, yeah. I made terrible grades. I, I started writing songs when I was eight, and I would sit in class and write songs instead of listening to class, you know, and what so my grades sucked. What drove you to do that? Just the knowledge that your father was a musician? I mean, why I heard you... him in my head. And so really? I was, I mean, I probably always heard him, but I, I started writing him down when I was eight. And, and, and those records that you were going through, do you remember which ones popped through? Oh yeah, you know, vividly, you know, <laughs> you know, Elton John was huge around that time. That was big, you know. Goodbye Yellow Brick Road was my favorite record. record man. I, I still love that record. Oh yeah, uh, my, my daughter, my nine year old daughter loves that record. The uh, Funeral for a Friend, incredible. Yeah. what's that song it goes into? Yeah, Love Lies Bleeding. Yeah, yeah Love Lies Bleeding. That's crazy. Killer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Dark Side of the Moon. I was a huge Pink Floyd fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I got into Zeppelin and all, you know, all the Your dad all had all stuff. those? Oh, yeah. He had all that stuff. You know, he had everything. He got promos, I'm sure, a lot, too, uh-huh. from, the, from Atlantic. Is especially he still got them? on Atlantic. Yeah. He does. Yeah. He's got a room in the house? Uh, yeah. He hasn't taken as good a care of his record. He he, he didn't, hadn't taken as good a care of him as, as I would have. But <laughs> Now, but, was that is that also something to do with your, your sort of compulsion about, you know, continuing to record on analog? Did you do Yeah, a, that's the way I like it. That's, I like the way that sounds. And, and, and I, I would imagine that probably through the entire uh, run of of the muscle shoal sound your dad was all it wasn't digital at all was it no digital was probably invented in the later yeah. days of it yeah but, 
you know, by then the heyday was long over. And uh, so you believe in analog? Oh yeah, I love it. Like yeah. the way it sounds. Yeah, you know that. You know Jack. Uh, Jack White is doing oh, yeah. that. He's going direct to acetate now. Yeah, that's it's that's killer. crazy. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to do one of those singles or something. That'd Why don't be great. You, you should? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. Yeah, we did a thing at uh, Third Man. Uh, I guess three years ago, when the last record came out, we did a little live, like little live EP thing there, and um, and actually had Dad come up and play on a couple of songs oh, for it. So that really? was cool. <laughs> and uh, and he was, I mean, he was super. Jack was super nice, super cool. Yeah. You know? But uh, uh, yeah, it'd be, be great to do something like that. So now, when did you start playing, and what did you start playing? Uh, I I started playing Dad's bass a little bit when I was thirteen. And uh, kind of figured out that I didn't want to. It was going to be hard enough to try to follow in his footsteps without playing the same instrument. So right. I, I pretty quickly got a guitar. I got an acoustic guitar and uh, one of those Mel Bay books with chords and started teaching myself some chords. And uh, I was a slow learner. I was a terrible guitar player for many, many years. I, I, I think I've really become a pretty good guitar player in the last, like the last few records. I've kind of feel like I've gotten the hang of it but yeah, I, I for a that, long time i was you know my guitar playing was definitely a weak link in the band as was my singing i've worked really hard at trying to be a better singer to try to do something with this crazy voice i've got you know well, it's, but, it's interesting though because you know especially uh, in, in terms of your sound and what you guys do is that the earnestness is important you know that you know whatever struggle you're having with your voice or your guitar playing. <laughs> I mean, that's the amazing thing that you realize. I think at some point, and maybe you did as well. It's interesting to me that early on you're like, "I ain't gonna try to follow in debt." I'm not. Right. Gonna, you, you know, thank God for punk rock. I mean, <laughs> punk rock happened just in the nick of time, and uh, and and, uh, and it also provided me with that much needed generation gap that I think at some point in a kid's life they need with their father to go through you got to fight against point. Them. yeah you know it's like that was the point where our, all of a sudden our record collection started looking different from each other's you right. know you know <laughs> right. before that mine was just like a smaller version of his you know the record i liked most in his collection i'd pick up my own copy but then all of a sudden i started buying these records that he thought were terrible and so like what course, you know i like the early punk records I yeah. mean, he just you know ironically now he really likes some of that stuff but i mean you know he didn't like the class or the pixies or whatever when huh. it first happened and uh it was years later before he kind of came back and appreciated that but um um it's ironic because he and charles from the pixies have become you know pretty good friends and he's played on several of his solo records so uh oh really yeah so uh and, and he told him that story about you know when i was a kid playing in the pixies the first time and him hating it you know and dad's been to see the pixies like three times and i've never seen them so he's you know. got well that, yeah it's interesting because the pixies got heavy bass sound yeah yeah and he likes that so, <laughs> it must, uh, must resonate with him yep so well that's 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 amazing because well it seems like that sound that, that you grew up around was really kind of a, a melting pot of things. I mean, in the documentary and in, in the music that was going on there, it was kind of hard to define, right? Because all those guys intentionally are, they wanted it to be, yeah. You know, they they didn't want to have a specific sound. They wanted their sound to be the sound of whatever the right sound for whatever artist came to town. Because I mean, they were truly session guys, and I think I think a little bit of that leaked into our DNA as yeah. a band. I think there and and probably one of the things that you know that i'm proud of about our band but we probably sometimes get uh uh slagged for it you know is is a little bit of eclecticness that comes from 
You know, I am fa- I am fascinated by the notion of being able to sh- shape shift as much as my voice will allow. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm limited by what I can do with that. But, you know, I love that our band has done, you know, the Go-Go Boots record was kind of a country soul record. And the record before that was kind of an attempt at a power pop record. And, you know, the record before that was whatever that was. You and know, you're they, conscious they of this. Of, when at you're... times, you know, and we're as we were conscious this time of 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 not thinking about anything like that i mean this record was we were very conscious of this time of just making english oceans yeah english oceans of just making a record out of these songs that we have at this moment capturing this moment right now as quickly as possible uh this moment in time for our band as people and as a band that was it's interesting because kind of i was i was listening to it and you know maybe i'm projecting onto it but there there was in a few tunes there was definitely a, a, a like a you know mid period Stones vibe, right? Is that possible? Oh, of course. We grew up, you know. Yeah, it's a, oh, that's total coincidence. You know, <laughs> I've never, never, never listened to Keith Richards in my life. Mike Cooley's never listened to Keith Richards. You know, <laughs> lightning strikes. Yeah, the garage goes up in flames. <laughs> but it definitely felt the the groove of it, you know, and the way the guitars were interacting definitely felt like that. Yeah, there was it was a good, you know, that was that's a kind of a good place to approach some of these songs from yeah and uh it was a good jumping off point especially for you know like the first song on the record for shit shots count i mean you know that was yeah, kind of yeah. the, the perfect jumping off point for that yeah the lyrics you know it, it's like in my life i've not i've never been like a huge lyrics guy i'm sort of a melody guy and a groove guy you know but like with you you know i'm gonna have to process i'm gonna right. have to sit down and listen to the story and i found like you know going over the catalog which I've been doing, you know, you know, some of the stories are profoundly moving. You know, I don't remember what record that story is about the guy who, you know, had a, who, what he ended up killing himself because the dam they built the dam and they. Oh, Uncle it, Frank, yeah, that's a that's a that's a great song. That's, that's yeah, my, that's Cooley's song. That's that was uh, what the album that was on? early. That's our second record. That's an early. I, that's probably the fifth or sixth song he ever wrote. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really an early song of his, and because uh, you know. And for years we played together. I wrote all the songs. Where'd you guys write. meet? Uh, we were roommates, kind of accidental roommates. Uh, he he lived with this guy that I knew, and they had an extra room, uh, you know, for rent in the apartment. I needed a place to move into really really quickly. And uh, the day I moved in, he was sitting on the couch, you know, guitar next to him. I was carrying was- a guitar. I was like, oh, you play guitar. I play guitar, you know. And <laughs> and uh, we'd sit around and drink. We didn't have any money to do anything else. So we'd sit around and drink cheap beer and play guitar. And we kind of, neither one of us were worth a shit. I mean, we weren't any good. And this was in Athens or this in This was in Florence, Alabama in like 1985. So you were? So, so I was 21. Cooley was 19. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, we were just punk kids. And uh, we were he was actually making decent grades in college and i was flunking out of college and uh you got in and though. uh i got in the college in my hometown right and, um which at that time wasn't hard to do or else they wouldn't have let me in now but, where did you did you were you like so you, at that time you'd written some songs you'd gotten you know you could play a little bit and where yeah. you were how what what was the uh the substance intake, you know, how much were you living that life at that point? I was, it was mostly just drinking, drinking beer, yeah, yeah. drink anything I get my hands on. I yeah, drank yeah. a lot, and yeah. uh, especially then. And uh, you know, if anyone had some weed, I'd smoke it. But yeah. if I had whatever, I'd do it probably. Yeah. But uh, but there wasn't a lot of that around 
in front of me yet at that time. And your old uh, man was still living down the street and your mom was still around? Uh, that was right as they were splitting. And, right. uh, so, uh, they had a, uh, house out on the lake, um, uh, that they, we moved into when I was in high school and that ended up, um, going to pay off lawyers basically. The I mean, worst. they, I mean, they, they spent two years battling it out in the courts until there was just nothing left to split basically. And, That's uh, a disaster. and it, 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 you know, it was a, terrible terrible divorce and and i was lucky to be out of the house but my sister was stuck in the middle my sister's eight years younger so she was stuck in the middle of it all and and um so uh she all right yeah she's great and and both your folks still around they're both around are they Uh, all right yep my mom's uh my mom's like in love and and in a really great relationship now and yeah uh, um she's her health isn't great she's got ms and Uh has some has some issues but uh but she's uh she's probably happier and and mentally healthier than i've ever seen her in my life Uh and uh and my dad's great you know the movie's been a really good thing for him Uh he's actually making a record with the water boys right now the water boys i know it's awesome he's producing it or just playing bass playing bass that's and, uh, well. That's the great thing about those old session guys is like they can still all play. Yeah, he plays his ass off, <laughs> and uh, I mean plays plays wonderfully. He plays incredibly. Uh-huh. And uh, you ever play with him? Just a little bit. He played on uh, that Heat Lightning record, the okay. the last solo record I did. Oh yeah, he's on three songs on that. And um, was and that nice? Really plays stunning. Yeah, yeah. It was really nice. It, it was it was a long process getting us to a point where we could do that. Why? And, uh, because I, I came from just a different the punk rock thing was our generation a gap. musical there's a musical problem you had with the session guy with the king of all session guys right right because he was the king you know, everything was perfect everything had to be perfect right and you know and i grew up where nothing was perfect you right. know the, my favorite parts of any record were the imperfections yeah and yeah. uh and uh which you know when i was a punk kid i'm sure he took as like a personal kind of middle finger you know and uh you know, I mean, he played on Still Crazy after all these years and things like that. It's tight, you know, man. That's super tight. tight. And that's incredible. I, I think that must have been all Rick Hall's, you know, uh, influence on that because it looked like that guy just he was drove a, a those tyrant. Yeah. yeah, just drove them. <laughs> he did. And they were just kids. And they oh, were yeah. like, and I can't even imagine that. All right, so all right, so you meet Cooley, and you guys are just hanging out. And and you both like the same kind of music and yeah we both did you know right around that time the replacements put out Tim and oh, yeah. uh, and that was the record that ins- literally inspired me to drop out of school I mean it's like it's I like, see that. it's like why why am I why am I fucking around doing this shit I'm I'm making terrible grades I don't, yeah I don't want to be whatever a marketing major does you know I don't right. want to you know I'm it's I'm obviously spinning my wheels and. Uh, you know, I knew I could write. I, I'd always that. You know, that was the one thing I could do. I, mm-hmm. I started writing when I was so young that, that, you know, by the time I was old enough to have it even occur to me that it mattered to be good or not, I had written enough to where I was comfortable enough with the medium that I didn't. You know, it it, it wasn't hard for me. I wasn't ever intimidated by it. You enjoyed it too. I loved it. Yeah, loved it. It was my therapy. It kept me from killing myself. Because you know, literally, write, and with writing songs specifically, specifically, yeah. Because like you know, I, I know that feeling because I you know I, I studied you know poetry and I was into writing poetry, but there it becomes sort of like like almost like this. Uh, you can chip away at it differently right. than like it's not like a story that you kind of keep writing, keep writing. You know, you get your guts you know out there, and then you kind of 
shape it and you, you can work with it. It, it yeah. almost becomes like a math problem. Oh, I know. I know. I love it. I love yeah. it. And I love everything about it. And, uh, you know, I, I would in a perfect world, I would get to do it even more than I do. I, yeah. I would write more. But uh, so the replacements comes out and you're like, that's that's, that's it. it. I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. And, and it's uh, interesting that, you, you know, <laughs> there's a benefit to the fact that, you know, growing up, knowing that your dad was a musician, but not the type of musician that was a grandstander, but a guy that, you, you know, obviously made a living. Right. You know, in music, that it wasn't this weird outlandish thing. You, I, I have to imagine that I, you're, you didn't think your dad was going to go, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. Oh, did he, he? he did. Oh, he, he thought it was crazy. It's like, don't drop out of school. You know, it's like it's like I spend my I spend my time playing, you know, with people who do this for a living. And I see how what they do and how hard they work in order to do what they do. And you don't have that. And oh, uh, oh, and it killed me, you know. It's like, and that was why I ended up in college in the first place. I got that one when I was a senior in high school. But he was right. I yeah. mean, he was absolutely correct. Whether he was right to, and he probably was right to say it. I mean, you know, that's a dad's job. Sometimes to, sometimes to, sometimes dad has to be an asshole. Yeah. Are you, are your and, father? And, huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's hard, you know. And uh, and and you know, my 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 dad, you know, he he didn't. Uh, some of that stuff didn't come naturally for him, but he was he he, he did the best he could, you yeah. know. And well, it's uh, good that you got in that perspective. Yeah, and I mean we're super close now. We're super close, but uh, but yeah, it was it was you know. But he didn't think you had the discipline or necessarily the talent, right? And to, the replacements was my proof that it didn't that that was okay. Didn't you know, matter. It's like well, they're on a major label. Yeah, <laughs> you know, this is on you know, yeah. and and yeah, my guitar is out of tune, but so's their guitar, you know, and <laughs> and uh, you know they. But they've got great songs, and I think I could write a great song. I think I could do it. You know, uh -huh. it's like I may not have yet, but I think I, I think if I quit this bullshit I'm doing and applied myself, I can do that. And, and when uh, you look back on your 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 uh, you know your work, right? You know, and it's a lot of work. Yeah. You know what what do you think is is the the example you would take to your father and go, huh? Yeah. I Which mean, one? You know the new one <laughs> yeah good for you i mean i mean he 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 came around pretty early in the drive-by truckers which was you know cooley and i had been together for like it was our 11th year playing together when we started the drive-by truckers so or yeah 11th year so, so uh what what manifestations did you go through previous to that playing we, we had show? a punk band called adam's house cat for and that six was in years florence in florence and, and uh, you, would you get a good local following? And uh, no, we were hated. We were hated. We were hated everywhere <laughs> for six and, years. And for six years, you stayed we were hated? stubborn. Oh yeah, hated. And our and our our flagship song was called Buttholeville, which made all of Dad's partners really hate us. So yeah. like 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 Dad's partner Jimmy Johnson, like he didn't speak to me for years over that song He's because a, it was the such guitar a, player. He took it as a yeah, and he took it as like a very personal fuck you to him, even though it wasn't at all meant that way. But. Uh, uh, Didn't you put that on a record? Uh, later, the truckers recorded it yeah, on Gangsterville. On, uh, yeah, on yeah. Gangsterville. Yeah. yeah, but uh, but yeah, so it was you know, so we were we were that. I mean, we were we were punk kids, you know, and we were of course it was it was all middle finger, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, that was what that was the that was the finger we knew how to raise, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, six years, and we were loud as shit. We had yeah. a really good drummer, and yeah. uh, we um we we just we mostly just practiced which uh -huh. is i guess why the truckers never practiced because we practiced so much those six years that you know we we kind of got all that out of our system we don't really you know we never practiced but, so uh, what was the choice to, to 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 take it to another level into another city um after that band broke up 
actually what broke up that band was we were attempting to relocate it to Memphis because we just had realized that it was not going to happen for us there. We had to have six years. Six <laughs> years. Yeah, yeah. And it took, uh, it took you to realize that. Woo, I'm slow learner, man. I'm a slow bloomer, man. And uh, so we tried to move. Cooley and I moved to Memphis with the intention of relocating the band, and instead it broke the band up. So uh-huh. he and I became a duo called Virgil Kane for a couple of years. And then we had a band out of Auburn, Alabama. Uh, we ended up down there. I was, uh, my sister went to school there and I started dating a girl down there. And so we ended up down there and, and, uh, we put together a band called horse pussy that for some reason didn't catch on. And, uh, and then we had a falling out and we didn't speak for a year or so. And, and who you and Cooley? Uh, yeah. We over had a chick. Big, uh, no, I don't even know what it was about. Some, some kind of bullshit. Yeah. But, uh, uh, we, we ended up, uh, having this big falling, I think mostly we'd just been we were just frustrated. I think we'd been playing together so long and yeah. going nowhere for so long, yeah. and putting up with each other's shit for so long with no reward. I mean, you know, because we we neither one of us, particularly in our younger days, were you know probably very easy to put up with. Well, that's an interesting point about about music in general and about you know when you see bands who who keep pounding, yeah, you know, and, and not unlike comics either. You know, you don't. You don't really know how or when to stop or if you should, and that's probably better off, but sometimes right. it's not. And I imagine that, you know, despite all your best intentions, whatever was going on, there's got to come a point where it's like, what the fuck are we doing? Right. I mean, it's, I mean, it's an important part of our story that we did that, that we split up, because it forced both of us to learn some important things to learn you know we had we had never had a serious band without each other for starters right. so we kind of took each other's roles for granted cooley had never written because i wrote all the time and cooley was you know he had no interest in it but once he didn't have he didn't want to go out and play covers yeah and so he you know and i'd always told him he should write i mean he, he was he was born to be a writer i yeah. mean i used to in adam's house go, man you should write this shit down you are you are a writer you're just not writing it down and i'll oh, fuck you you know but yeah. uh but all of a sudden without me around saying that he started writing it down and it was great and and i you know the first thing i did was you know part of the way he and i work is whatever i do he kind of applies the opposite to it Mm -hmm. and that wasn't in our younger days always appreciated you Mm -hmm. know but uh if i write a pretty song then he's going to make it as ugly as he can make it and if i write something (laughs) ugly and dissonant he'll play something beautiful on it and uh but all of a sudden when we split you know when we split and it just it just came naturally that's who we that's who we were that's how that's how our that's how it manifested itself there's still a little fuck you in there of course you know (laughs) and with when all of a sudden i was putting it together a band without him i would find these players who played beautiful played great you know but they would play so complimentary to me whatever i wrote they would play the perfect thing for it and i ended up not liking it it's like man I, i miss that friction you know i miss that that you know i need someone to ugly this up this song's already pretty enough or this song's already ugly. i need someone you know i needed that opposite thing yeah yeah and um so by the time i create to the, athens to create the sludge yeah you need <laughs> yeah you need to sludge i was thinking where can i go and i wanted to live somewhere i was very close to my grandmother and my great uncle and they were getting older i didn't want to move way off and never get to see them so mm-hmm. i wanted to be within a day's drive and uh 
Athens was like the the closest place I could find that offered what I was like. I wanted a, a, a cool town, yeah, and somewhere where you know there were you was, fans of, a fan of the music scene there? Oh, of course, and REM was you know they were gods, you know. To and what me. was the and, other one that uh, be yeah the B-52s one fifty twos and the ones that that weren't REM but were that never quite made it? Pylon, yeah, Pylon, who were incredible, yeah. you know, and yeah, and I was already into. I mean, I was into a lot of the Athens bands. Yeah, Vic Chestnut was up there, who's just my hero and one of my favorite people in the world and uh and so uh although i I wasn't i had heard of him when i moved there but i didn't i wasn't really aware of his music i'd never actually heard him yet until i'm unbelievable it's unbelievable and uh, life-changing yeah first time i saw him is one of the nights that i definitely will consider like a life-changing show i went to what 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 happened uh, how long have you been in athens uh, you move up there and not long. I, I had just gotten there. Kind of when I first got to town, people would meet me. They'd hear what I was doing. They would immediately say, "Man, you need you need to go see Vic Chestnut. You would like that, yeah. you know. And he's the best songwriter in town." I was like, "Who is this yeah. best songwriter in town guy? I need to see, you yeah. know." So I saw, and then it's like, "Oh, okay. He's <laughs> fuck town. He's the best songwriter in the world, you know." I mean, I, I'm. I'm convinced that someday they will be studying his work in in classrooms and shit. I'm sure they are. I probably already are, and especially in Europe, probably. Did you uh, Did you develop a relationship with him? Yeah, we became we became friends, you know, and and uh, I I didn't get to spend a lot of time with him because we were both touring all the time. But we we had a we really hit it off, and uh, and uh, the little time I did spend with him was something I'll always treasure. Yeah, and uh, uh, because he was pretty sick by then, right? Well, yeah, I mean, he had a hard, you know, it was hard. I mean, God, yeah. you know, being a touring musician is hard. Being a touring musician in a fucking wheelchair, yeah. I mean, you know, who's, you know, a paraplegic. And, uh, you know, I, I went out, the way I got to know him involved a, a trip we made uh, to play a, a Christmas benefit that Jay Farrar was putting on in St. Louis. And uh-huh. we flew up together, and there was snow on the ground. And, uh, and he was, you know, I just never would have occurred to me because I'd never spent a lot of time with someone in a wheelchair. The amount of terror that inflicts because, because you know, that's a, a big deal, you know, to get snow on you and it, 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 you don't feel it and it can cause, it can burn your skin. And you know, it's, I mean, it's just, you know, things you just never think about until you've spent, you know, a little bit of time doing that and, uh, and just watching him and then how he would just come alive on stage. And I mean, it was just so moving and life changing. Yeah. Truly. Yeah. I, I, I found, I found him pretty astounding. Yeah. Were Did you, you know a, him? Did you know no, him? I didn't all? know him at all. And I, you know, and I, there was a period there where I got very into it, you know, and bought all the, the records and really, you know, filled my head with it because he had a sort of an ability to, to, to to go pretty deep and pretty dark, but he had a very Ooh, amazing, so funny, and yeah, an amazing turn of phrase, an amazing wit, yeah, just like you know, bordering on hilarious. Oh yeah, yeah, truly. Yeah, and and uh, I I don't like I I know that he ended his own life, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, it's so brutal. Were you at the funeral? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and we played a, a big memorial, like a how was it two? I think it was a two day event that we. A bunch of people put on at the 40 watt and uh it was which was just one of the most beautiful things i've ever been to do you and, ever uh, cover his tunes um we covered um uh, when i ran off and left her off the drunk album uh-huh. uh we i worked it up for that and then the truckers recorded it uh it was like an extra track on the go-go boots sessions yeah 
Well, it's a, so he was he's probably the most profound influence on you. Oh, he's a huge one, huge one. All right, so you moved to Athens. And moved you, to Athens. And you and Cooley are back in it? Uh, not long after that. It was like, you know, we, we'd... we'd did he follow you up there? No, he's never lived there. And uh, as he says, I, I like Athens way too much to fuck it up by moving there. You yeah. know, he 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 he, he kind of likes it being the place he goes to work. So where and is he? He's in Birmingham, and uh-huh. he loves it. And Birmingham's been good for him, and cheap cost of living, and you know, good place for you know, for the family and his his wife's uh, a nurse. So there's a lot of work. There are a lot of hospitals, a lot uh-huh. of healthcare stuff there. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And. So, uh, yeah, I moved to Athens, and uh, I got a job working at a club doing sound, and uh, which and I just immersed myself in the music scene there. It's like, wow, I finally live in a town that has a scene. Who was it then? There were hundreds of bands. I mean, there were literally 300 bands in a town with 120,000 people in it. Yeah. So it's just, an, you know, the... the depth and density of the scene was amazing and uh you know everywhere you went whoever was waiting on your table was a musician and and you know whoever and you liked it of course yeah i just fell madly in love with it and uh uh started drinking coffee and and <laughs> and uh you know it was uh it was it was ex- one of the most profoundly liberating life-changing things I ever did was when i moved there and uh which like i said 20 years ago next like in like in about three weeks so um, I moved on April Fool's Day, 1994, uh-huh. and uh, the day I moved into the house that I rented there was the day they found Kurt Cobain, and uh, so it was just like pretty mind-blowing Darkness place to be, yeah. Came, and, came uh, over the town. It was a crazy spring, you know, that was going on, and, and, and the O.J. Simpson thing was all, all happened right at that time, and, yeah. and um, I was just... You know, going out every night and seeing bands and seeing as many bands as I could, and and um, and writing just cr- like crazy. I mean, I, I I wrote I probably wrote a hundred songs the first year I re- lived there. I mean, I just wrote and wrote and wrote, and uh, some of which became my second solo record, the Murdering Oscar record. A lot of that was written right at that time, and uh, then I came up with this idea that I wanted to put together this i kind of had a specific idea for a band i came up with a name and i started writing songs for it before i even had the band it's like i was it's like i was going to start over with brand new songs brand new thing you know what was the idea and it was drive by truckers but like when you say you had an idea for a band what what did you picture i had a uh, an old friend or a new friend that I just made uh, a guy named Jim Stacy yeah. who uh, actually has a restaurant a really successful one now in Atlanta called Palookaville but he and his then girlfriend Debbie uh, went on this little weekend trip up to the mountains with uh, uh, my then wife and I and um, we uh, they brought all these like cassette tapes of just honky tonk great old old timey country music yeah. and garage garage rock from uh-huh. the 60s and and uh it, you know stuff some of it i'd heard on the periphery but i grew up you know ah, country shit i don't listen to that but all of a sudden first time i'd heard it with new ears and as a grown-up and 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 probably you know with the right combination of chemicals to make my mind open to it but but i, I fell madly in love with it and uh with the combination uh, with of the honky tonk and psychedelic garage music all of that plus i was really into hip-hop yeah and, and so uh so it's like well you know i think i can write in this format this this kind of old country format but infuse it with you know the more the subject matter that the hip-hop artists are writing about but from the perspective of you know white 
you know, white redneck male who grew up, you know, uh, witnessing all this shit, you know, and, uh, and so it just kind of, you know, one thing led to another. And I wrote, uh, I think the company I keep was the first song I wrote for the, uh, which is on our second album for, for this band. And, um, right around that time I wrote pretty much most of the first two, my parts of the first two albums. Well, isn't it funny though, that, that your conception of this band you know, to to include you know uh, you know country music, uh, hip hop sensibility, and rock and roll is 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 exactly what you come from. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's I mean exactly. It's, it's black a lot music, of it is it's stuff, country yep. music, and and it's yep. uh, and it's a uh, rock. And and a lot of it is is stuff that I'd spent part of my life running from, uh-huh. and all of a sudden it caught me. You know, yeah, it caught up with me, and I knew immediately that Cooley had to be the guitar player in that band. Uh-huh. It, it it absolutely was essential that he be part of this project. I mean that was the that was the key ingredient for this band in my head that I wanted, and uh, so I had to lure him back in, and uh, and I mean. And there was like a it was like a strategy involved and look because he was you know he was living in birmingham he had his own life going and and uh um, was he working as a musician uh he was playing guitar and uh he was like the the only white guy in a in a, in a funk band uh-huh. and uh doing funk co- like brick house you uh-huh. know playing those songs uh-huh. and uh and uh which he's really good at i mean he really? can, i mean he can play the shit out of it and uh uh hence him being the the white guy in the band you know yeah. that 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 they called on i mean he could play but uh so uh but at the same time i knew he wanted to do his own you know do original stuff and uh and uh it just so so i opened it up to him it was like how about i'm going to put together this band but there's an open spot and whenever you're free and want to come play the door is open but if it's not going to work out for you if you got a gig or you got to work you know we'll we'll carry on and play and so the first six months open door policy it was for the like guitar that. player yeah. yeah and and in the first six months he probably missed four or five shows but not for long i mean it was like he obviously loved doing it yeah. and it clicked and uh and even in those very beginning days we were more successful than any band we had ever had so yeah. it was kind of encouraging because of athens probably. we had 50 people coming yeah. to see yeah. us and they all loved it like, yeah. wow this never happened you know yeah i'll come back and play the next one you right know? right and so next thing i know we're all quitting our jobs and you know taking off in an econa line and playing 250 shows a year all over the country i mean it was pretty quick we we just we just threw ourselves in it and uh, it's like everybody everybody quit our jobs the same day and, just and had took you put, off. and that was before you put the first record out or it's right after right after the first record right actually right as pizza deliverance came out is when we the all quit record. our jobs yeah the second record we uh that we all quit our jobs and this it's like this is this is our chance it's now or never this is the best the best shot at this shit we're ever going to get is right now and if it don't work at least we'll have tried uh-huh. and um so we did and here we are <laughs> it's interesting though because the ideology uh, uh or, or you know the conceit of what you wanted to do it, it, it remains right that you know with with, it, with gangster billy and then you know pizza deliverance that you were you were struggling it seemed like to me that your agenda either through you know, a point of view that you were manufacturing, you know, that obviously comes from your heart, but the, the idea that, you know, you you were trying to reconcile, you know, something that I think, you know, the Muscle Shoals guys tried to reconcile too, which is race, right. the reputation of the South, right. what's good about the South, 
you know, what isn't good about the South. You know, it, it was it, it seemed like to be part a very conscious part of the project. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And as fate would have it, or right at that exact same time, I was separately working on this other thing that morphed into Southern Rock Opera. And, uh, you know, the, some of the writing of Southern Rock Opera even predated the starting of the Truckers. I, and, and for a while, when I was working on what became that record, it didn't even occur to me that that would be the next Trucker record. There was just this other thing I was kind of working what on. What was driving you to work on that? Uh, I mean, in the very beginning, it was uh, uh, a guy named Earl Hicks who produced pizza deliverance and uh-huh. uh, our live record alabama ass whooping and then became our bass player for a while in the band he uh he and i had this idea we were going to try to write a screenplay about a fictitious rock band in the 70s and kind of base it on the some of the you know i knew a lot of stories growing up around bands and and the stuff i'd hear on the periphery and in particularly a lot about the leonard skinnard mythology yeah. because they had recorded in muscle shoals early on and well yeah dad what, knew them and, well that 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 part of that story that what's his name jerry the the guitar the who produced those the, your oh, jimmy dad, johnson yeah. jimmy johnston you know recorded that, that right. a lot of the stuff that was on the first record but couldn't couldn't sell it right he couldn't get him a, a record label and but he he laid down what 13 or 14 tracks yeah one of them the being Freebird, Freebird, yeah, and they left him, right? And uh, so, okay. And then they wrote "Sweet Home Alabama" as kind of a olive branch because you know when they left him, I mean, it was you know hurt feelings and you know a little bit of anger, I'm sure, involved. But they, uh, but you know, you know, they wrote "Sweet Home Alabama." That whole verse about Muscle Shoals was kind of meant as an olive branch to Jimmy Johnson, <laughs> as was my song "Ronnie and Neil" because Jimmy had such hard feelings towards me for uh you know buttholeville and uh-huh. some of my punk rock behavior as a, a a younger as a younger gent and uh so he uh so i wrote ronnie and neil as kind of an olive branch towards jimmy uh for that and uh and how did he respond oh we we, we it, it worked it, it we we're fine now <laughs> but uh he speaks to me and uh he might even halfway like me now but uh but so it started as a screenplay idea and you had all this stuff kicking around your head from your dad's world and, and right. from you know just being the age we are and, and loving skinnard right. i imagine i loved skinnard you uh i i did as a kid but then i went through a real period of not you know the whole you know the whole punk rock thing and 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 the whole rebel flag thing was a big turnoff and right. uh and and you know and actually in, in researching because I, I like when we were writing southern rock opera i mean we got really geekish you know i mean i i mean i researched like you would you know uh like you uh, dissertation yeah, yeah i mean I, I really did and yeah. uh and in a lot of my research i kept finding that they were really trying to distance themselves from some of that right when the plane crashed you know and and they were kind of in a period of you know they weren't wanting to be this southern rock thing they wanted to be a a, a world-class rock and roll band and uh and they were you know doing away with some of that i you know they they were starting to realize that people were misunderstanding what they were intending with the flag and all that kind of stuff and and uh but um but at any rate they you know i was i was writing this thing but you i was touring all the time it. oh yeah i'm i'm very obsessive yeah. and uh and uh and it kind of dawned on me. It's like you know, I, I don't have no means whatsoever to make a movie. I, that world is, uh, you know, a million miles away from where I am. But I've got this kind of kick-ass band. Why don't we just turn this into like a, you know, a rock opera? You know, it's yeah. like which was you know the most out of 
out of fashion, out of style thing at that era that you could possibly think of. So of course that appealed to us yeah. in itself. Sure. The fact that you know, fuck you, and and also yeah, and also you know, our rock opera opera kind of pokes fun at the whole notion of a rock opera. I mean, you know, there's definitely a lot of middle finger and a lot of you know, uh, a, a lot of. Uh, a lot of humor and poking fun and just the pure notion of a rock opera because rock opera because it is it's a silly thing you know and sure and so so it was so that was part of the idea on that too and uh and then in the midst of writing that george wallace died and um one and i was i was at home and uh Turn on the TV, and there it all is. There's the fire hoses and the right. the police dogs and all the just horrible, terrible shit that you know that you know the people South is known that, for. That, that we're known for. You know, especially my home state. Yeah, and uh, and something like snapped in my head, and all of a sudden the you know Betamax Guillotine, which was the original name of Southern Rock Opera. That's when it kind of became this other thing. Was I was watching all that footage. And I got so just I got fucking pissed. I mean, I was just so mad. And I wrote the Wallace song that's on Southern Rock Opera and uh, which, I, you know, is, is from the devil's point of view, welcoming George Wallace into hell and telling him why he's there. Yeah. You know, it's like it's like it's like, OK, you know, maybe you maybe you weren't a racist, but, you know, you you perpetuated all this bullshit to get votes and that might make you something even worse right if there, if i don't know if there's anything in my opinion worse than than race racism is just the most evil of evils and i think is the root of so many of our world's problems and uh but uh but if there is anything worse than that it might be perpetuating that bullshit for votes and not even you know not maybe not even believe in some of that shit but but playing that card you know and, like, and you fuck had, you for playing that card right and you had to research that because like mm-hmm. in that song you, you know you 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 were able to sort of yeah. you know document through through the george wallace story right. that uh, you know he was willing to change his views when the public right. was willing to turn so you know his you know he was more you know he was obviously a, a bad guy but you know it was more about politics and it was sure. about belief sure and he had been a progressive yeah. i mean before that he had been a progressive you know his first election he ran for he ran as a as a moderate on on segregation and you know had his ass handed to him and so he reinvented himself as the george wallace that we all knew that, that but, ruined you know, the reputation of your state you know yeah <laughs> and so uh so I, I wrote i wrote that song really quickly I, I later wrote the three great alabama icons and that kind of gives the backstory and all that but but i wrote the wallace song really quickly on the same night that i also wrote uh I also wrote Let There Be Rock and I wrote Angels and Fuselage. I wrote all three of those songs on the same night. And Let There Be Rock's a great song. These and they're all it's what what I love about the way you write songs is that you know despite the the perhaps the the the, the despicable nature of either the the character in the song or the voice the narrator of the song is that you humanize them. Right. You know, and because that's the real trick to it, because people, you know, these characters are they're they're multidimensional, they're complex. Yeah. And they're still people. You know, his 
George Wallace's grandson's a drive-by trucker fan. Yeah. And, uh, and I mean, I've run into him when we've played in the town he lives in, you know, and he came up to me and he thanked me for that song. I'm like, are you kidding? You know, are you, did you listen to it? You know, but he's like, you know, hey, he's like, you know, look, my, you know, my grandfather did what he did, you know, and, and, you know, at least you told the truth about it. You, you didn't just, you know, it, it, you didn't make it this black and white thing. You, you know, you told, you know, the other side, you know, of the, of the ugly story. Yeah. And, and, and he appreciated it, you know. And so, you know, and I, I do try to be fair to the people I write about. I, I do even the the worst of them. Almost every person, there's more to them than just the facade, you know. And so I try to get past that. And just like some of the more likable characters are also very flawed, yeah. you know. And uh, so I, I really always strive to be fair and you know don't always nail it no but i thought that like southern rock opera was this like it it, i learned something from it because you know i grew up judging the south in a very in a very broad way of course and and the truth of the matter is is that you know guys like you grew up knowing that yeah so to me that that album in its entirety is is an attempt to to sort of reconcile uh the different parts of the south and the different parts of of what the the stereotype is right humanize it i mean and, the south gave us booker t and the mg sure and, and yeah, you know? right. that's right and, i mean if nothing else you know if faulkner and booker t and the mgs were the only two things that had ever good that had ever happened down there right that's a lot and also it's, it seems to me a, an unconscious uh, uh continuation of of what your father was involved with for sure for sure that because they didn't see color lines in that right. studio and, and my dad he totally got that about what we were doing that was that record was the moment when he realized that maybe maybe i was onto something with this music thing i was so obsessed with well, that's know, that maybe nice. i did have a chance and uh and he was uh and, and it's funny because when we were working on that record you know and and that is obviously the record that put us on the map i mean that record you know is is why i get to support my family doing what i love and 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 why when i tour now i ride on a bus instead of a van right but uh but at the time we were making it everyone said we were crazy you know it's like it's like you're you're gonna throw away you know y'all kind of got this little momentum going you're gonna throw it away to go do this this thing about leonard's you know what the hell you know and 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 so of course we reveled in that you know me and you know me and Cooley both were kind of, you know, and 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 by that time Brad was in the band, and and all the, all the all the guys that were in the band in that lineup, Rob and and um, and Earl, we all we all kind of reveled in the fact that everyone thinks we're really fucking up, but we're doing this thing that if we can just make, if we can just complete it, it's going to be cool. You know, like I've come back to Skinner because I, you know, when I was a kid, I had all the records, and, right. and I was upset when they died. Sure, me, oh yeah, me and too. and you know, and then I I I didn't go like I didn't say fuck. Skinner, I just, I just felt ashamed of it. Right, right. Well, yeah. When and, and if you're playing in a band, and we had our little punk rock band yeah. in, in North Alabama, and we'd be playing in a club, yeah. the people yelling "Freebird" weren't being ironic. Right. I mean, right. no, they actually would would be waiting for you outside and want to kick your ass right. because you wouldn't play "Freebird." But know, the they, argument, they were not being ironic at all. Right. But the interesting <laughs> is that the argument you make in Southern rock opera is that you know they were misunderstanding some of the intention. Of sure, that band. absolutely were. You know. And now what did, did Gary Rosington ever, ever, did any of the survivors ever talk to you about this? Did you ever meet them? Yeah, we, we did some shows. We actually had the same management briefly 
uh, is them right around the time, not long after Southern Rock Opera came out, when we, we, we ended up getting a major label because of that. And yeah. we signed to Lost Highway, and we got picked up by a management company briefly that uh, that also managed them. And so we did a few shows with them. It was really awkward and kind of weird. And, uh, you know, I, Gary's always been nice to me but i don't think he particularly cares for what we do and yeah. uh and i and i understand that i don't uh, you know is I, he a good he old boy or what I, I i i don't know i don't i don't know him I, I i just you know i've met him he's always been nice to me but i i don't really you know and at that point though that was a juggernaut of a business and right. and and you know right. the, the the necessity for that band to survive no matter what and maintain the status that they once had must have right. been it must have felt like real full-on show business yeah yeah and and <laughs> uh and you know and I, and they could didn't i'm sure they didn't know quite how what to make of what we were doing because they didn't uh, know how to take it right yeah. artemis paul was the one in that because uh, he didn't play with them by then he had already did he pass away? No, he's still alive. But he, uh, the drummer, the drummer. But he, he, he really liked Southern rock opera. He was very complimentary and uh, came to see us in Asheville, North Carolina, where he was living, and uh, uh, came backstage and told us some amazing stories and 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 all of that. But um, but yeah, you know, it was it was a it was a crazy experience going, you know, becoming kind of famous for this or semi-famous for this this weird thing that that you know people have a lot of people misunderstand and still and, and particularly people who have never heard it probably can easily write it off as this thing that isn't at all what it is supposed to be let's get into the jason isbell period because you know i <laughs> talked to him it was interesting because i was on a show with him and i wasn't familiar with his solo work really and then people were like you got to talk to jason and then i like i had to you know sit down with his work and then you know make the connection with you two guys because i knew he was with the band but i didn't know uh you know what that yielded for you but it seemed like the sensibility and the you know the depth of emotion that that guy's capable of as a songwriter and, and as a player it's amazing sort of complimented yeah. and and really fit into the vision that you had had had, had for drive-by truckers me another, another one of those moments you know i've i've had my my, my life i've had a a series of like moments of clarity that have happened at various times uh-huh. usually at the in the nick of time right when it's most needed you know yeah and one of which was the idea that became uh the drive-by truckers and one of them was the idea that became southern rock opera and uh and uh meeting meeting jason at the exact moment i met him counts i don't, I don't guess that's a moment of clarity but it was definitely like a a a life-changing moment in time that happened you know we were we had a mutual friend we were both at that friend's house your dad uh well well yeah but that wasn't it was a a, a friend of ours named dick cooper yeah who uh ended up working for the band for a few years yeah. and he had been um and ironically he had been uh, the tour manager for the opening act for skinnard on the street survivors tour mm. and uh and he's just a guy muscle shoals guy that had been on the periphery of a lot of stuff he's always that guy behind the scenes that made shit happen right he was one of those guys and uh i was staying at his house and um and Shauna was his roommate, and Jason was in town visiting Shauna. I don't think they were dating, but they were they were friends, yeah. maybe beneficial friends even. And and uh, he was, the, and we were all at Dick's house and sitting around. Everybody had guitars. Dick's other roommate was a guitar player, uh, Scott Boyer, and uh, we were all sitting around, kind of passing the guitar around. And um, I was in the finishing 
process of like finishing southern rock opera uh-huh. so i'd play a song off that and then jason would play this like amazing song you know, it was like god you know actually one of the songs he played was tva which later came out on uh, one of our records and uh and uh he uh it's just you know it's like god damn that kid you know and he looked i mean he looked 14 he yeah. looked like you know he was heavy and yeah. he was overweight and 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 very baby-faced and yeah. he was he was in truth i guess 2021 20, but he looked you know early teens yeah. and uh and it's like god damn that kid can play and that, god damn that kid can write you know and so um I played some solo shows that summer and I would take him out with me and he'd play a few songs kind of opening and then back me up for part of my set. And, you know, and and then as luck would have it, we were uh, in the middle of the first leg of the Southern Rock Opera Tour and uh, things went south with, with Rob and the band. And, and for various reasons, he kind of left suddenly and uh, kind of wasn't there one night when we needed him to be. Yeah. And uh, Jason happened to be there that night. Uh-huh. And there was the, we were playing this acoustic thing. It was kind of a sit-down thing. And uh, and uh, we had, Southern Rock Opera had just kind of started taking off. And Spin Magazine had sent uh, a writer, Eric Weisbard, yeah. in, in, into town to cover it. And uh, so uh, we're playing this show. We're missing a guitar player. And Jason's <laughs> sitting there. I was like, hey, man grab a guitar you know these songs you've been hearing me play them all summer and so he jumped in and then the next day got in the van and took off with us and first week first two weeks he was in the band he wrote outfit and decoration day and uh you know and so we were touring behind southern rock opera but we were already writing the record that became decoration day and uh and those three records working those songs up those three records that he was on i mean it just seemed like you guys you know, sensibility-wise, really complimented. Oh, it each was other. amazing! It was it was amazing. It was an amazing chemistry, and uh, and it was a lot of fun. And he was this f- bright-eyed, fresh-faced kid, you know. And and uh, he was like a kid in the candy store, you know. Yeah. And and we were all getting our first taste of some sort of success. You yeah. know, we were, you know, all of a sudden we were starting to move into bigger rooms, and and we were touring just unbelievably relentlessly, really hard. But uh, but we were having so much fun with it that you know it, it didn't even seem like work at right. first and uh and, and so it was great you know and then that we did decoration day with him and he's such a big part of that and then we did you know we were already working on dirty south by the time decoration day came I out i love those two records and so we you know we're just working and working and working and uh you know and i think we broke ourselves we mm. worked too hard yeah. and without any kind of breathing room and jason was so young he and was we going were all, hard he was going yeah, hard. he was going hard and we were all you know 12 15 years older and uh and um you know so we had already been through some of the stuff he was going through and kind of come out the other side and probably not totally always patient with you know yeah with with the young kid going through it and he really didn't like being considered the young kid either you know as anyone in that age isn't going to like and uh and, 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 you know, and then started thinking, you know, God, these guys, they're old, you know, these old fuckers. They're, Trying to they're, tell me not to yeah, drink, you know, slow well, down we, on we, the blow. We certainly weren't, weren't saying, well, that part we definitely, he, he did not need to do blow, but uh, no one needs to do blow. But, uh, yeah. but the... Um, I mean, the he talked thing. about this, by the way. I'm yeah, not speaking yeah, out yeah, of school. I, I know. I know he's been, he's been very candid about it. And uh, we... You know, we, we, I mean, you know, we were a hard drinking band and, uh, and, uh, a a very hard living band, but it, 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 it got different with him, you know, and, and I think he just got, 
you know, I think he didn't quite know how to handle the success yet either. Yeah. You know, it's that's a tough pill. It's, it was it was hard at thirty five. So I can't imagine what it would have been like being, you know, twenty two. It was his first real serious band. Yeah. He'd never really been in a band before. Uh-huh. He'd always just played his songs. He was sure. a singer songwriter, and uh, and so and he was writing all these songs way more than could fit on any one of our records, especially with two other writers uh-huh. and and. Uh, you know, and so it, it was it was inevitable it was going to clash. I mean, I knew when he joined that it was just going to be a temporary thing. And then Shauna joined, and that was all great for a little while, but then for a, then their marriage started falling apart. So we're all cooped up together, and there's all this drama and all this tension and awkward shit. And, That's some good raw and, meat for songwriting. Uh, Huh? Yeah, fuck that though. You know, I've 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 I've, I've been divorced twice myself. Yeah. I, I I have plenty of fodder. You know, plus my parents <laughs> divorced. I got. I don't need. I don't need new angst. I got. I still have a lifeline of angst I can dip into the, at any point in time. The river of fury. Yeah, they're, they're, it runs deep. <laughs> I got it, man. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, did you like his new album? Uh, I thought it was phenomenal. It's beautiful, right? I think right? Elephant's one of the best songs I've ever heard anybody write. Yeah. I, I think it's just incredible. And, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful record. And I'm really proud of him. I'm really proud of him. I think Amanda's great. And I'm really proud of him getting his life together. And, uh, you know, I, I'm... I'm you know, I never would have said that he wouldn't do it, but I wasn't sure he would do it either. I mean, I sure when you know, you're, when I you're never in. wanted to underestimate him, but at the same time, you know, it didn't look too good at times. I mean, it, it you know, he he just when he drank, he just became just you know, he was he was he was not. I mean, he was not good to be around, and uh, and uh, and then like I said, adding in all that other baggage and other bullshit and. Uh, you know, when he left the band, it it was time. He, it, it, that was the only way for our band to continue forward was for us to part ways, and it was it was painful and it was uh, it was terrifying because I didn't know if we were gonna if it would still even if if our fans would even totally revolt if we would lose everything. But yeah. it was seemed like it was the only choice we had moving forward, and. Um, you know, I think it worked out. It, it has. We we continued on, and you know, I think we're in a really great place now and i'm i'm great i'm no, thrilled I mean, to see him in such a great place yeah now. well that's good to hear i mean the record's great and i'm you know i'm glad you guys are okay and you know it's it's one of the weird concessions if that's the right word that we have to make you know being in the fields we're in is that you know you see guys go down yeah and you know you, you know you got to get out of the way yeah you got to do what you can but you know you have to sort of you know kind of accept in yourself that like nah fucking I don't know. Yeah. I mean by that time we all had kids. You know it's like yeah. it's like you know it's like I, you know this this thing we do is also our job now. And, yeah, and also and you don't want to, you don't want to catch a bullet because someone else is an asshole. Right, right, and and <laughs> you, know. you know I'm 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 likely enough just from my own assholery without that. You know <laughs> yeah. if I'm gonna if I'm gonna take it, it needs to be for something I did. You know? <laughs> But, if I'm gonna take it, it needs to be for something I did. That's yep. a, that's a life lesson right there. Woo, yep. Well, I love the new record, and I and I love talking to you. And do you, do you want to play a song off of it, or, or any song? Um, you feel comfortable doing I, that? I, I'll, I'll if you'd like. I can do I can do anything you like. All right. Yeah. Let's mic it up. All right. I want to want, want to tell you thanks for having me over. By the way, oh, this is great, and it's an honor to get to do this. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, I'm and thrilled. I love your book. Oh. I mean, just. God, it's amazing. It's great, great. So, um, thanks, man. But, um, 
uh, this is the last song on our record, and uh, it, it, uh, it's a song called Grand Canyon that I wrote about a, a part of our trucker family. Our, our, our he was our he, his official job was he was our merch guy, but he was actually kind of our ambassador. He 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 worked the merch table on our tours for seven years, but in that in the course of doing that, he got to know like like literally hundreds and hundreds of our fans like intimately he he was just had this kind of photographic memory for people and names and and uh and really built relationships and was kind of like you know the guy that they all knew and uh and and he and I were he was close friends with all of us too and uh he died really suddenly about a year ago and um we were not long before we made the record and uh and uh, we were all just kind of devastated. And the first tour we had to do without him was like the week after he passed. And uh, we, um, uh, I wrote this song for him on that tour, and it's the last song on the record, and which we dedicated the album to him. But his name's Craig Liskey, and uh, the song's called Grand Canyon. Went to Grand Canyon And we stood at the expanse And we watched the rocks change colors And we watched the shadows dance And we probably didn't say anything As the sunset turned to night We let the spirits do the talking Cascades of fading light And we drove across the desert Saw the mountain range at dawn Heard the thunder rumbles echo Against the rocks that gods were made from we drove across the wastelands Till we finally reached the sea And I wonder how life so sturdy Could just one day cease to be It's never one to wonder About the things beyond control I stare off into the darkness I feel the highway roll I feel the highway roll And we roll on in the darkness Till the nighttime turns to day All our sorrows, pains and angers And we turn them into play there's no time to dwell upon it This is life that we chose That made it all worth living This the sorrows that life throws Recently departed made the sunsets Say farewell to the ones they left behind They were taking the color use To see our sadness through as the sun over Athens said goodbye, 
say goodbye Great. That sounded great. Thanks, man. All right. Thanks for doing it. It's a great song. Thank you. And good luck with the new record, and good luck with everything. I'm glad you're doing all right. Man, thank you so much. Sweet conversation and sweet music from uh, Patterson Hood, the drive-by truckers. Go see them if you get the chance. Buy their records. There's a ton of them, and they're all pretty fucking good. So uh, that's our show. I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. <laughs> That's how it ended if I was a radio guy. Go to WTFPod.com. Kick in a few shekels for that uh, upgrade of the app. But first, get the free app. Kick in a few bucks and get the premium app, and you can stream all 400 and whatever episodes. And you can get your JustCoffee.coop over there. You can leave a comment. You can, I, you know, do, do the thing. I'm just happy you're listening. All right. We got a lot of good shows coming up. Everything's okay. I just got to stop. I got to stop. I just got to stop. Boomer lives.